your verse packet on the back is a little bit lengthier than normal, and so you have that there. Uh, you can feel free to use that. That's going to be the vast majority. I think all of the verses that we're going to talk about tonight should be in that package, no, our packet. Uh, if you do want to open your Bible, if you'd rather go uh, open your Bible to a place and read through it there, maybe you have a different translation, um, that's fine. First Samuel 8 is where the vast majority of the text is going to come from, though we'll be a little bit all over. Uh, just as a reminder of where, we've, where we came from last week, we're moving into a new section of the study that we've been in where we're now uh, be really getting close to establishing God's kingdom uh, in the way we think of kingdoms, with a king leading and, and all of those kinds of things as we move into the book of 1 Samuel. And we'll spend the lion's share of our portion going through the kingdom of Israel, the historical setting that they're in as we go through the years and things like this, and ultimately up to the exile in Babylon. And so uh, we saw last week that Samuel is this bridge from the judges that came before to the kings that are going to come after. Samuel is the last judge in the line, and Eli came just before him. These two are not mentioned in the book of Judges, but when we get to the book of uh, 1 Samuel, they are mentioned there, and we see in Acts that Stephen calls Samuel a judge. And so we know that he is one of the judges that's meant to deliver uh, Israel. And what we also saw last week, I think, was that uh, in the midst of Israel's downward spiral into sin and as chaotic and nasty and filthy as the book of Judges uh, ends, God has been preparing, without Israel's notice, mind you, this child named Samuel. Behind the scenes, without Israel uh, repenting, which is not like the book of Judges. The book of Judges was uh, oppression, repentance, judge, and then living under the rule of the judge. And then, again, wickedness, repentance after oppression, and, and that kind of cycle. Whereas Samuel, they're continuing to live in this filthiness at the end of Judges, and yet God then delivers them with this little baby who then preaches the message of repentance. And so Samuel comes along as one clearly marked out by God but while in, in an era where God is not speaking, where it's very uncommon for God to speak to a man, here is Samuel growing up in the temple and having temple privileges there under Eli's instruction. Uh, Eli eventually dies and his sons die on the same day. The ark is captured and ultimately Samuel comes into his own and begins to lead the people out from under the hand of the Philistines. This happens chronologically about the same time as Samson's story at the end of the book of Judges, or towards the end of the book of Judges. So uh, Samuel is growing up in about that time, and Samson is actually not the one that eventually crushes the Philistines. That's Samuel. Samuel rises up and ultimately then uh, crushes the Philistines and puts an end to their rule, or at least for the time being. So uh, that's kind of where we left it was there where Samuel had finally ended the Philistine rule and enabled the Israelites to regain their former territories. And he commanded them to put away their foreign gods and turn back to the Lord and, and be morally upright. Um, there's times where you see, in probably in your own life, where maybe you pray for things 
And maybe you're being a little bit selfish when you pray for things. And God gives you exactly what you ask for. You know those, have you ever had those times in your life where you just, and then you realize sometime later, it may be years, it might be days, it might be decades later, you go, he gave me exactly what I asked for, and I really wish I had not have asked for that, right? Um, Israel is going to see that the hard way, I think, in, especially in this section tonight. You know Israel demands a king. They're going to demand a king. They're going to demand a king of Samuel. And so often what we hear is that, well, they demanded a king, and that was bad, and so God punished them for demanding a king. But that's not entirely true. That's at least not the whole story. So we're going to take a look, a little bit closer look at that. So Israel is, uh, you know, they, they, they've been given Samuel. He's been a righteous person. He leads them. He preaches repentance. Put away your idols. Uh, follow the Lord. They decide that they're going to do this. But this is the same old Israel, it turns out, that has always been there. And they decide they want something different. And so Israel rejected Samuel. They actually go to Samuel. And he, here was one of the biggest problems is that you know Samuel had some kind of wicked sons. And though people were in general pretty okay with Samuel himself, it was, it was really his sons that were a, kind of a problem. And so they, they come to Samuel, and they're, they're just not okay. If you look there in 1 Samuel, well, first and 4, 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel for 40 years. And then 1 Samuel 7, 15 to 17, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in, those, in these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. So here, is, here uh, Samuel is this judge uh, after Eli, and Israel comes in and actually rejects Samuel and demands a king, and, and so it ends basically Samuel's rule. It ends his, his judgeship. But the problem, as I said, was that Samuel had appointed his wicked sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges to replace him. Now, uh, Israel doesn't, oddly enough, doesn't take too kindly to this. They don't really like the idea that Samuel's wicked sons would replace him. In fact, they tell him as much. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, 1, when Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel, but look at what happens in verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Who does this sound like? Yeah, Hophni and Phinehas. Who are, who, who, who are these Hophni and Phinehas, these people you speak of? They're Eli's boys, right? So, well, isn't it true that if... Samuel, Eli's boys were wicked because Eli was not totally on the up and up. He wasn't always great, right? But Samuel, he's a good guy. Why are his sons wicked? What's the answer to that? Yeah, because of sin. <laughs> you're not guaranteed righteous children. Even if you're righteous. Even if you walk with the Lord. Even if you teach them every single day. 
of the ways of the Lord. Even if you remind them of the stories, even if you share the gospel with them, even if you teach them every single day, you're still not guaranteed righteous children. That's not how it happens. And so as is the case with Samuel, uh, it doesn't seem as though Samuel does anything really terrible with his kids, but yet they're, they end up just like Hophni and Phinehas. And uh, they take bribes, they pervert justice, they don't do what is right, and Samuel has appointed them as judges over Israel. What does it mean to be a judge over Israel? What would they do? Judge? Okay, yes, but what does that mean? <laughs> don't use a word to define, to define, don't use the word to define the word. What does that mean? Okay, so it means deciding disputes. So there's like the counseling type uh, elder role sort of deal. Yeah, that's part of it. What else? Yeah, that's what, that's what we think of when we hear judge, and there's certainly, that's certainly part of it, sure. What else? Deliver. Whom? From what? All right, deliver Israel from uh, the hand of the wicked. So that means putting the wicked to death or driving out the enemy, right? But what, what else? There's one other thing that they would do. Prophesy, tell them what the Lord is saying, lead the people in righteousness is essentially what they're saying. Point them toward uh, righteousness, which we see less and less of in the Judges as we go through the book of Judges. But uh, Samuel certainly is that. Samuel has this sort of kind of beginning uh, infancy role of prophet, priest, and king, doesn't he? He is a Levite, so he serves in the temple. He has some prophetic roles in that God is speaking to him and through him to the nation of Israel. And he is a judge in that uh, he's kind of a little chieftain over the people, in these, certainly in this little circuit that we saw him traveling through. And so he has this role of not only speaking the word of the Lord, but also leading them in righteousness. So if you have some boys that don't walk in the ways of the Lord but pervert justice, is that really good for a judge to be? Well, no. But then question, if that judge is appointed judge over you, what does that have to do with your righteousness? What does that have to do with you following the Lord? Well, it doesn't, right? And what is the history of God? What is his, what is his pattern? What's God's pattern of behavior over the nation of Israel? When an enemy rises up, who provides the person to come in and take care of the enemy? God is, right? So the question is, what place do the Israelites have even if the people appointed judge after Samuel are his sons? What place does Israel have to come in and usurp the chain of command, as it were? Well, it turns out they, really, they don't. But they're going to anyway. They're going to assert their own will in this situation. So they come to Samuel, and they don't really like the fact that he has, um, he has placed his, his sons over him. And so what happens is that they don't really consider the role of judge which God had given Israel to be enough for them. And so they don't want a judge. They don't like this kind of chain of command that, uh, that is happening here where uh, a person who is a judge is hearing from God and then decreeing who should be the next judge. They don't, they don't really like this pattern. They're not okay with that. So they want 
something else. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now that's not inherently bad. It's not inherently bad that they want that. But what is, uh, what is, what, what's obviously happening is that they're not okay with the Lord's leadership and the Lord providing a judge for them. And so um, God would tell, eventually tell Samuel as he's displeased that the problem is, uh, was with Israel and not with Samuel. Uh, look at verses 6 and 8. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have re- not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. And so they are also doing to you. So if the judge is appointed to make decisions and to lead in righteousness, when they come to Samuel and they say, we don't like the decision that you made, Samuel takes offense to it, and God tells him, do exactly what they're asking you to do. Give them exactly what they're wanting. Because it's not you that they've rejected, and it's not your decision as judge that they've rejected. It is ultimately me that they have a problem with. They don't want me actually leading them. They don't trust me to provide a deliverer when a deliverer is needed. They don't trust me to lead them in righteousness by providing them a leader that will lead them righteously. They ultimately don't trust me. And so Israel has been a rebellious people throughout their history. They've turned aside to wickedness over and over and over again. And so we've, we've seen this in all of the stories that we've gone through so far. They come out of Egypt through the, the uh, Red Sea. They are in the wilderness for like 40 days, and they've got a calf built that they're worshiping. So after, Israel, after Egypt's army is drowned in the Red Sea. And so there's just no amount of miracles that they can actually see. There's no number of, of good people that God can bring to them that will lead them to ultimately trust Yahweh and trust that he's going to provide the kind of, of leaders that they actually need. And so what was the first thing that God wanted to do? Okay, I don't know if your parents ever did this to you, taught you a really good lesson by giving you the things that you want, but there, there's, there's the obligatory warning that comes right first. Like, okay, just understand what you're asking for. Do, do, you, do you really understand what you're wanting? And so the Lord tells, uh, it tells Samuel to warn Israel of the ways of the king. Now, the ways of the king, ways is literally in that pass in the passage we're about to read, ways is literally judgment. T- tell Israel, be sure you talk to Israel about the judgments of a king and the kind of judgments 
a king makes. And, but we're going to see it sort of falls on deaf ears. Who will read 1 Samuel 8, 9 to 18? All right. Now, you would think after that kind of warning, people would go, ah, yeah, that, that doesn't sound great. Uh, I think in the history of the world, we, we see uh, taxes as an ever-increasing thing, right? <laughs> I mean, when you hear taxing going down, you're, it's like, what? Uh, that, that never happens, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so uh, you're going to, oh boy, is it going to be bad? Taxes are going to go up, and you're not going to be able to come out from under them. And then when that happens, you're going to cry. That, I think, is the most pivotal verse there at the very end of, eight, of 18 that Ronnie read, is that you're going to cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. How is that different from the past? How is that different from the past? Yeah. That's exactly it. In the past, they would cry out for a deliverer, and the Lord would raise up a deliverer. It doesn't matter who the, deliver, who the oppressor was. It doesn't matter if the oppressor came from within Israel or from without Israel. God would raise up a deliverer and deliver them. So what is the ultimate consequence then if Samuel's sons, who are not as righteous as Samuel, are appointed as leaders over them? What happens if Samuel's sons lead them in wickedness and are, are oppressive? And Well, what would they do? Well, then they would cry out to the Lord and he would save them. So you see that they're asking for a king is not just a, a ah, well, your sons are wicked and we, we really want a good, a good guy. Give us a good guy. That's not really what it is. What it is is we are not trusting that the Lord is going to deliver us this time. Now, do you see the lunacy of that, having watched the book of Judges play out from beginning to end? You see the lunacy of then seeing the Lord's hand work time and time and time and time again, and yet then coming to this time and going, but it won't work this time. This is the time he stops. He says, no, but when I give you a king, that's when I'll stop. It's at least a warning. He's still compassionate and merciful, 
but it's a warning. So you would think, okay, well, that's going to work. The people would listen at that point to Samuel, surely, and, and sound reasoning would take over. Turns out, no. Look at verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. Oh, here's the bad part. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, who's fought their battles in the past? God has. He's been very clear from the beginning with all of the judges. The judges have even been clear in the beginning. Jephthah, I think, is the one that just states it plainly. God's the one that delivers you, not me. He's the one that fights your battles. This is plain to Joshua when they walk into the promised land. The Lord is going before you. As long as I'm going before you, you'll be okay. And when he doesn't go before them, well, guess what happens? They get, they get their tail whooped. But here they are. We want the king to lead us. We want him to fight our battles. Sometimes... Sometimes tangible flesh and blood is comforting when it shouldn't be. And it's difficult being led by God. You can't see him. You can't... Sometimes it feels so distant and sometimes it's just so tempting to have something a little bit more tangible in front of you. And God is saying it's a lack of faith that causes that. So um, now we get to this issue of a king. Is the central issue a king? Is it, is it precisely because they asked for a king? The answer is clearly no, according to the Bible. He actually promises the uh, kingship to the patriarchs all the way back in Genesis. He promises the patriarchs that they're, that they're going to have a king. Let's look at Genesis 17, 6, and then 16, and then 35, 11. Who will read that run of passages there? It's very, they're very short. Okay, so first we have the prophecies in Genesis that says, look, kings are coming for me. There's, there's going to be kings in your line. Okay, so we know that kings are coming. Uh, so it, it, it seems like there's, there's first, there's prophecy uh, back in Genesis. But then Moses actually sets up the expectation and gives them instructions for how a king will come about. So it seems that God not only knows that they're going to have kings and that he's going to permit kings, but he actually gives them instructions for it. And he even requires that the king be an Israelite. He puts restrictions on it. You can't have king from some other nation. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 15. They're at the bottom of page 1. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the, other, like all, all, all the nations that are around me, 
You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Oh, there's, the, there's, the big, there's a big difference right there. Whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So there's instructions on what this king will be like. He's not going to be an Israelite, and you may indeed put a king over you. Well, so then what's the problem? Are we, we're asking for a king. We've got a king. There's permission to have a king. What seems to be the big deal? There are even some restrictions that are placed on this king. Uh, he cannot acquire many horses. He may not acquire many wives, nor can he have excesses of silver and gold. Look at Deuteronomy, the first passage on the back uh, of page, or so page two of your verses. Uh, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excesses of silver and gold. Now, why the horses? Okay, that's certainly part of it. He says it right there, because don't go down to Egypt and try to get horses either. They had tons of horses. What do horses symbolize? Military power, which is exactly what Egypt had, right, was military power. So I don't want you to return to Egypt. That's one huge part of it. You're never to go back there again. Second, I don't want you to require much military power. What is the take, taking of wives? Can't have many wives? What? Why? Entangling alliances. You're not allowed to get a bunch of entangling alliances with foreign countries. <laughs> There's also that. <laughs> let's, just, let's just be plain about it. Yeah, it, that's what it is, right? It, it's uh, entangling alliances that, that that's the real, the, really the thing, is that it leads you into worshiping their gods, is essentially what it is. Um, nor excesses of silver and gold. What is that? Self-reliance. So no prosperity, because then you'll rely on yourself. No entangling alliances, because then you'll follow after other gods. No horses, not many horses, because then you'll rely on your own military strength. What is the Lord removing from possibilities of the king? Self-sufficiency. In fact, the king was actually required. Something I, I'm not sure any of them fulfill. I have to think about it for a minute, but I don't think any of them fulfill. Is actually to write out the law themselves and read it. He finds the law. I'm not sure he writes it. Does he write it? I don't think he rewrites it out during the time of his reign. But they're required to write it out. And they don't. But they're required to write it out. Why? to teach them who God is. And if they're leading Israel, then the only way they can lead Israel righteously is to teach them who God is. They're placed in that position. And they're supposed to, as kings, as judges, lead righteously, not only adjudicating all the mess, not only squashing the enemy that the Lord is going to do for them, but actually lead them in righteousness. And teach them who God is. And the only way to do that is by the law. And you're not going to do that if you're depending on your own strength. Well, that sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. 
Sounds a lot like the Beatitudes. Blessed is the one who's poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourn, for those they that mourn. These that Matthew is painting throughout his entire gospel is people that actually depend wholly on Christ or on God for everything. And here he's setting that precedence for all the judges or any king that would come after them. Now, one thing that's notable in uh, Solomon's experience <laughs> is that he pretty much specifically violated all of these. <laughs> um, so what do you see, what does that then say about Solomon? Yeah. Not awesome. Go ahead. Uh, grant you riches, yes, but it, who's granting the riches? God, but so were those riches not the riches that he had? Like, did he accumulate more riches than he was? Yes. Yes. Okay. Through his entangling alliances. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. Lots. Um, and the thousand women, you know, that, that he had obviously contributed to a lot of that. Um, okay, so here, so Solomon, uh, essentially, uh, as we're going to see when we get to, we'll talk about Solomon too in First Kings. There, there's a lot to Solomon because so- Solomon's coming in and he's building the temple, and he, God even promises to David that your one from your line is going to sit on the throne, right? Um, when you're, if you're thinking through, and we'll talk more about this when we get to Solomon, but if you're thinking through the biblical story and you're seeing a promise, Adam and Eve fall, and you see a promise of a seed coming that is going to uh, lead, that's going to lead, that's going to lead them out of this mess, right? Um, you're waiting on that, that person. When the line of kings is established and David comes along and he unites everybody and he wants to build God a temple... And he acts as prophet, priest, and king. He can't build a temple. Why? He's got too much blood on his hands. And so one from your line is going to, is going to, your line's going to be on the throne forever. Well, we're getting closer now. I, one from his line is going to be on the throne forever. We're taking a step closer to this promised seed in Genesis. Well, then Solomon comes in and builds the temple. He builds it, and it's got a lot of Garden of Eden imagery throughout the temple. Boy, hey, Solomon might be it. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a real hope there. Except that entangling alliances, building his own wealth, acquiring an army, uh, he falters in almost every way. So um, anyway, that's, we'll talk more about that when we get to Solomon. But Solomon exhibits uh, really failure from top to bottom. Um, but what we see is that kingship itself is not a bad thing. It's expected. It's coming. There are rules in place for it. The problem was Israel's motive and the timing. It's Israel's motivation and the timing that was the problem. Um, It seems as though, I'll let you write that down, motive and timing. It seems as though Israel's motivation was not simply that they would uh, have a king much like the rest of 
the world around them, but that they wanted to actually be like the other nations. Did it skip a couple slides? Or is it there? Yeah. So that they actually wanted to uh, be like the other nations and that they wanted to have a king uh, so that they could become like those other nations. Like he gave them permission to be like the rest of the nations, you know, because you're, you, you want a king like everybody else does. But it seems that Israel wanted to actually become like the rest of the nations, that they didn't want God to lead them, that they didn't trust him to provide the kind of leadership at the time that they needed. They want to become like the rest of the nations that are essentially godless. And so the reality is that Israel already had a true judge and king in Yahweh. Look at uh, Judges eleven twenty seven. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war with me. The Lord, the judge... Decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. That is uh, Jephthah that's saying that. He's saying that the Lord is the judge of these people. And uh, essentially, Israel has totally rejected that. So in regards to their motive, that seemed to drive them, is that we want to be led physically and tangibly in a sense that we don't want God to lead us. And when you leave, Samuel, we don't trust the voice of anybody coming behind you. We don't trust the voice of the Lord coming from your son. Ultimately, though, it's a distrust of Yahweh himself. But then there's also a timing issue. Um, The Lord is going to prepare a king for them. Who is it going to be? Ultimately, it's going to be Jesus. Jesus. Because the reality is they don't, just need a, they don't just need a king. They don't just need someone to fight their battles. They need someone to deliver them from sin, to actually save them from their sin. Because what they don't see, what they don't quite understand yet, is that that is their biggest problem. That's their biggest enemy. That's what's keeping them from driving the other nations out next to them. That is what's actually causing their hearts to turn towards idolatry as they're in the land and they encounter all these pagans that live near them. Not only do they not drive them out, but they turn to idolatry. Why? Because they're wicked. So ultimately, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that's going to deliver them at the proper time. And the Lord is preparing Jesus to come in and actually save them. And until he comes, they do not trust the Lord to actually deliver them in the meantime and to lead them in righteousness and provide the kind of leadership that they want. And so they want a king. But the problem is, as we look through First and Second Samuel, well, really, you get into it in First and Second Kings, Chronicles, throughout the prophets, what you see is with very few exceptions, The people that came in to lead them as kings are wicked and oppressive. Very few exceptions along the way. But the people that come in to lead them are wicked and oppressive. So what the king is supposed to do is come in and judge. But the irony is that he is going to be a judgment on the nation of Israel for their lack of faith. 
So how do we understand this line of kings that we're about to look at? Well, it's a symbol for the entire duration of the Old Testament of Israel's lack of faith in God. So God gave them a monarchy. And after the failings of Saul, we're going to see, he chose his own king, David, to lead Israel. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. Does the request for a king catch God off guard? Now, we all know the answer to that question. We'll say no. But do we have evidence for it in the Scriptures? Yes. What comes after the book of Judges? The book of Ruth. Why does the book of Ruth come in between Judges and 1 Samuel? Yes, she did. Chronologically, that's true. It seems to... Yeah, um, yeah, it's a prequel to Samuel, right? Uh, Ruth is sort of a prequel to Samuel. What does Ruth establish? I mean, let's be honest. Okay, so there's four chapters in Ruth. Would we really be hurt if we just whoosh, ripped them right out of the Bible? Yes. Of course we would. Why, though? Because the very end of Ruth. I'm going to answer my own question for you, Shannon. Uh, because, because the very end of Ruth. Look at Ruth 4, 18 to 22. Somebody read that out loud. Uh-oh, that's how the book of Ruth ends. Why is that important? David's a big deal. All right, David's a real big deal. The state of Israel at this moment during the judges is they're all distinct. What just happened behind me? I have no idea. Uh, that wasn't even intended, so sorry. Um, I got nothing. Um, <laughs> Sorry, just ignore that. Um, the state of Israel at this moment, uh, during the time of the judges, is in complete and utter disarray. Uh, we remember in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And everybody's kind of disjointed. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, you remember what's happening with the tribe of Benjamin? They're turning on the rest of the tribe. The tribe's killing the tribe of Benjamin. The rest of the tribes are killing the tribe of Benjamin. This is the state all under the reign of Saul. It's in complete disarray. What does David do? Brings them all together as one nation. He's going to unite all 12 tribes under his monarchy. That is a big deal. That is the hope. But what's Israel doing? They're asking for a king 50 years before David will ever take the throne. 
at least 50, probably a little more than that, but at least 50 years before David will ever take the throne. Saul reigns from 1050 to about 1,000 before David actually assumes the throne and actually sits on it. It's a timing issue. The proof is right there in the text that God has already anticipated Israel's need and has borne them a king that will lead them, a judge that will lead them righteously like David. But they're unwilling to wait. Instead, they want a king now. And who do they get but the one hiding behind the luggage? They get the big tall guy, but he's a coward. They get the guy that when they're standing across the valley from the Philistines, where is Saul? In the tent. The rest of the nation is watching this Philistine walk out on this hill and taunt them from a distance. And Saul is in his tent. And here comes little scrawny David, the cheese bearer, saying, I'll fight him. That's God's guy. That's Israel's guy. It's a timing issue. They're unwilling to wait on God's leadership because ultimately they do not trust it. And so what does God give them? Exactly what they want. But at the same time, at the same time he gives them exactly what he wants, his provision is coming. Isn't that amazing? To me, that's really amazing. They don't even realize how sinful they're being, I don't think. They don't even realize the depth of their wickedness. They don't even realize how stupid what they're saying really is. And God is going to give it to them as judgment. And yet, all the while, his man is waiting in the wings. Questions, comments? Timothy. It seems as I've watched my own life play out, I make really dumb decisions when I'm in great distress. I make really dumb decisions. I make really dumb decisions when everything is going right. I make really dumb decisions. And I seem to be able to come up with a lot of solutions that the Lord just needs to hear because if you could just hear my solutions, they're pretty, I think they're pretty brilliant. I mean, if you just give them a second, I think you'll see the wisdom in it. And there have been more than one time in my life where I have asked the Lord for my specific version of deliverance, and he gave it to me, only for me to find out some months later, boy, that was dumb. 
that was really dumb. I, I just, I'm still comforted and blown away as you look at the story unfold that even in spite of their idiocy, he is still faithful and is still gracious. And David makes tons of mistakes, but he shows them, you were foolish with Saul. Let me show you what happens when I appoint the ruler, when I appoint the guy. Let me just show you. And yet, what is Israel going to do again? They're going to fall again. And he'll supply them rulers occasionally that are righteous and give them a taste of, oh, when God does this, this is amazing. And they'll fall again. And at the depth of their fallenness, when they get to the pit, 400 years of silence, then comes Jesus. amazing. Any questions? Questions? Go ahead. Yeah, you, the, I think it's good to have an understanding of the book of Proverbs. Um, the book of Proverbs is not putting out things that are always true. The book of Proverbs is pointing out things that are normally true. Um, so as an example, a little rest, a little slumber, a little, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty comes on you like a robber, basically. But occasionally, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and a rich uncle dies and leaves you trillions of dollars. That happens occasionally to people stumble upon a winning lottery ticket, right? That's occasionally what happens. But what's generally true is discipline, and they don't depart from it. And that is generally true. And that's what Proverbs is getting at. Ecclesiastes is pointing out the opposite. (laughs) No matter what you do, it's all worthless. (laughs) <laughs> so the, the wisdom literature is a study in and of itself, and we'll get there at some point, but the wisdom literature in the Old Testament is trying to give you the many facets of the big diamond of life. Job is, another, is the other facet. The, the friends in Job, they come to Job and they say, well, God rules his universe completely justly. So because he does that, since you, have, since you have boils everywhere and your family died, you must have sinned. Tell me where it is. I didn't sin, I'm righteous. No, clearly that's not true because this is the way God rules his universe. And what you find in, in Job is, no, that there are righteous people that suffer. It, Job is the ultimate ruiner of the prosperity gospel, right? So it, 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 they're, all three of them are giving you uh, a, a different look at the diamond of the way God actually operates Proverbs is general truths. Ecclesiastes, the, the, the plight of life. And then Job is, well, sometimes the righteous do suffer. And sometimes the wicked prosper.
some time. And it's like, it ain't in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's like, you look at the Old Testament, there's just like, all, all these kings are all horrible. Even David, you know, Solomon's given the wisdom of God. David messes up everything. But God's faithful in all of that. We still get yep. the Psalms in these periods. We still get prophets who direct words from the Lord in these periods. And so just knowing that, however bad things look at any point, it's been this bad before. Yep. It's going to work it out. And instead of pining for it, oh, things are like this. His people persevere. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, boy, wouldn't it be nice to be first century? Let's be a first century church. Which one are you going to be? Corinth? Be Corinth? You want to be Galatia? Maybe? Yeah. <laughs> be tuberculosis? All right. Go ahead, Timothy. Will I cover that? It, yes. <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, all right, let's, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for time to just meditate on your word and think about what's happening in the Old Testament and how true it still rings in my ears and in our ears today of us. Man, wow. I am uh, still just blown away by time and time again in my own life, how you have taught me again and again and again the same lesson uh, of how foolish I can be, and yet you are still faithful and true. And I do not deserve that, but I am so grateful. I'm so grateful that you do not always give us what we want, and I'm grateful that sometimes you do but it is in love and discipline and correction that you do it. And so we are eternally grateful for that. We're grateful that you've sent your son to die for us, that uh, there's a gift we didn't deserve at all, and you gave it to us, and we have eternal life because of it. We don't deserve that either. Um, how amazing it is as we reflect on your grace and your mercy to us over the years. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.